This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. We are here with Nachum Siegel of the Nachum Siegel Network, one of the premier Jewish audio networks, maybe the only Jewish audio network out there. How are you, Nachum? I'm doing well, and yourself? Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us, and uh, very excited to speak with you. A little intimidated, not going to lie. Interviewing the interviewer gets me a little bit nervous, but uh, we're going we're gonna to do our best. I have full confidence in you. <laughs> You'll give me a grade afterwards, maybe off the air. Um, so, I, of course, would love to hear about all of the incredible work that you've done over, at this point, decades on the radio and, and certainly uh, now in, in new mediums as technology has evolved. But where did that all start? Where did you grow up? What was your early childhood like? And what eventually led you to this most unusual career for a nice Jewish boy? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, well, funny enough, the career for a nice Jewish boy was recommended by a nice Jewish mother. I know that's hard to believe when it comes when it comes to our community where, you know, doctor, lawyer, accountant might be something a mother might suggest. <laughs> radio uh, host. Usually that's the, that's the yeah, point. Radio host is generally not there. You know, insecure industries are usually not the norm when it comes to Jewish mothers. Um, well, I grew up in Newark, New Jersey, and eventually moved to the Oranges. And at one point, when I was going to Kent Marasha, actually, uh, which at that time, and I believe it still is, was affiliated with Yeshiva University. My mother, who knew that I was about to enter YU after the summer, said, when you get to camp, speak to some of the guys there about the radio stations. They have a radio station at YU, and I have a feeling that that's something you'd enjoy, uh, you know, working at a radio station. Why did you think that? I mean, as a kid, there's no question that I was, um, you know, I liked being an announcer, and there are recordings of me as a five and six year old, you know, reading sports scores and things like that. So there may have been a precedent, but in general, I like the microphone. I like to present. Uh, I like that word better than perform because I think when it comes to radio or spoken word, it sounds nicer. Uh, I was into that kind of thing, and uh, not not that I was really active uh, during my teenage years with it, but uh, she felt that it would, because she knew that YU uh, had a, a, many opportunities uh, open to its students. And she knew there was a radio station up there. She told me to check it out. Sure enough, I did. Fell in love with it immediately. And then by complete fate, uh, although in our tradition, we don't believe there's anything as complete fate. And you need some faith as well. Uh, during my senior year in college, uh, the radio station in the New York area that had a daily Jewish morning show was looking for a host. Huh. It happened, the people in the search committee happened to call Yeshiva University, speak to the director of student activities, who was a very close friend of mine who I had worked for, and knew that you know, I would give my right arm, so to speak, to do that type of thing. And this was back in September of 1983. Oh. And I've been on the air every day since. Uh, I worked at that radio station, the one I just alluded to, which is WFMU. I worked there for 34 years. And almost a year ago, we parted ways, an amicable uh, parting. And my morning show essentially became the flagship program of what is now our online independent digital network. And we broadcast every day with many different uh, methods, as you alluded to, in terms of how people can listen in from around the world. And uh, so far, it's been great. Well, just you know, kind of rewinding a little bit back to those early days in 83, I remember as a, as a Baltimore uh, native, I think of 1983 as the Orioles' last World Series. I remember that one. And Cal Ripken's rookie year. But right. uh, I guess it was your rookie year, too. <laughs> That's right. But uh, you said, you know, you fell in love with radio right away at Yeshiva University. What do you think about it sort of made it love at first sight or at first sound, I guess? I think only a radio person really gets it. The incredible 
magnet that radio can be for the right personality. Every minute is fresh and new, and every little thing you're doing, whether it's playing music or doing interviews or reading announcements or anything, it's all this incredible rush of, of a live performance and, you know, sort of a situation where you don't, just don't know what's going to happen next. And all of that excitement together makes it a really unique experience. In addition to that, it's a very imaginative medium. If you are one, you know, who enjoys imagination, both having it and also, you know, playing to other people's imagination, it's an incredible medium. And it's one of those areas of life that I believe is, is so vast. I'm sort of thinking like a bottomless pit, but I mean, of course, that's a negative connotation. Just there's so much room to grow. You know, there's a board game called Othello, and the, the phrase is a minute to learn, a lifetime to master. I always think of radio like that. It really is a little bit more than a minute to learn, but it is a lifetime to master. And every day is a new adventure. And there's just so much vast space to grow in. And, you know, in those days, you talk about the 80s, I was finding any excuse to be in the radio station. <laughs> if, they, if, they needed someone, if they needed someone to babysit a cassette tape that was being played from one to two in the morning, <laughs> I was a volunteer just to be in that environment and just to, you know, hang out with the microphones and turntables. Wow. Um, it's, you know... Like I say, I'm sure radio people get it. It's funny because at my, now I'm bouncing around, I hope you don't mind, but at my going away party when we, when we had this, you know, eventual parting of the ways, it's a long time. It's three and a half decades at one radio station. Obviously, I had a lot of friends and, and relationships that were formed there. And people are telling stories. They're getting up and they're relaying stories of things that had happened with me and them, you know, over all these years. And many of the stories are about the commitment to radio, how I'd be there during Blizzard and 9-11 and how during different difficult times or real down times when nobody would be at work, you know, you'd find. And it was funny because the non-radio people who were there, someone pointed this out to me, the non-radio people who were at the party were sort of, were sort of you know, gasping. In, you know, they couldn't believe you, you, you mean your wife had a baby and a minute later you're on your way to the radio like that type of broadcasting thing. from the delivery room yeah. I can't believe that it's so much of a priority and the radio people the majority of whom are radio people sitting there are like yeah yeah of course you know you know if there'd be a blizzard I would do the same I'd sleep there for three nights and you know and make sure I'd be at the show you know so I thought it was very funny uh, I'm but sure your wife uh, didn't always appreciate that you know you say eight <laughs> centimeters <laughs> My wife, I've always said to her, and she knows, that JM and the AM, which is the name of my morning show, is my first love. I wouldn't say my first wife, uh, but my first love, and she has always been an unbelievable sport in understanding that, that, that love affair. And there's something about it that's just exhilarating. It's just wonderful. It's interesting. You know, I think the sort of passion that you describe, in your case, it may have expressed itself through radio, but I think anyone who's kind of driven to sort of a calling can relate to that single-mindedness, that just consuming energy that sort of takes them in whatever that industry might be. And, and yeah. certainly that I would meant. say even further, I would say even further that it's a, uh, if you're in an industry that for, that for you yourself, is one that you anticipate every morning when you wake up, is one where every day feels fresh and different, where, where frankly, you're nervous at certain times. You may have done something, you know, for three and a half decades straight, and yet there's things about it that, you know, that, that put butterflies in your stomach. If, if you're experiencing that, then yes, you have a very good idea about what we're going through. What was that early radio station like when you were in the in college? Was it you just kind of you spitballing your, your, your philosophies of life? Was it music? Was you know, it politics? It's funny you ask because, because radio, like I say, when I was first introduced to it, I fell in love with it right away. 
So we are all, many people are online, this is back in 1981, are online on the first radio night to apply for positions, to apply for shifts, you know, to do shows. I knew nothing about Jewish music. I applied like most good college kids to do a rock and roll show. <laughs> so I'm, I'm online, I'm waiting, and uh, the guy in front of me who was experienced because he had been there the year before, he says to me, uh, you know, what are you doing? What are you applying for? I said, I'm applying for rock and roll shows. He says, you know, if you have, and he says it in this voice, he goes, you know, if you apply for a rock and roll show, there's a 50% chance you'll get a show. If you apply for a Jewish music show, there's a 100% chance you'll, you'll get a show. At which point I changed my application to Jewish music show just to guarantee that I'd be on the air. And, and the early days weren't really, it wasn't what you described as opinionated. It was more, you know, being a DJ, uh, it led into a Jewish affairs show that I did. At that time, I just wanted to, you know, be a little bit more versatile. So I actually had guests. I mean, there were, you know, college radio guests. So, but uh, a lot of us from that era, you know, really tried to hone our skills. Even if we didn't end up in radio, I ended up in radio, but a lot of people just tried to, you know, to grow in that area. And also one other piece to it is that in the 80s and 90s, radio, as hot as it is today and as popular as it is today, in those days, there were, you know, there, there were limited forum that people could, could hone their skills. You know, there, there was no podcasting didn't exist and everybody couldn't do a show and, and feel they were actually reaching an audience. So these spots were, you know, few and far between, hence the story about my application. Yeah. And, you know, so it was, there was a value to it that, you know, where people understood if they're doing it, they're going to make the most of it. And uh, I think that was unique for that era. And it's just been an amazing experience. Was it clear initially from the people interviewing you or, you know, determining your, your future there early in radio, either in college or shortly after, that you had sort of this natural radio voice, this mellifluous, rich baritone or, or bass yeah, that raises the radio? I think that, I mean, from a voice quality, I think people felt I had an advantage. I think I did work with people in college who had better radio voices than I did. And I would say that many people have pointed out that my voice has gotten better over the years. I don't know if I'd agree with that because, you know, usually one likes their younger voice. And I don't mean young meaning teenage, but young meaning right. in 20s and 30s than they would later in life. But a lot of people have pointed out because of the experience and stuff that it's gotten, you know, uh, even more presentable, let's put it that way. Uh, whether they knew about a, a talent voice-wise, I don't know. I, 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 think, I think from the early days, I was surrounded by a lot of people who encouraged me because they felt that radio and I were a pretty good fit. And they encouraged me to continue and work hard at it. I, I think the voice thing may have been a real, you know, just not a priority, not, a, not the most important thing to them uh, in terms of finding talent. They wanted people who, you know, would end up understanding how to run the equipment and do it well and produce a good crisp show. And then of course, host a good crisp show. And then of course, the voice always helps. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I've been joking around with people since I've been podcasting. They say some people have a face for radio. <laughs> As I say, I have a voice for newspapers, you know, because I don't have that, uh, that rich sort of baritone that you have. Hopefully we can compensate with personality and with creativity and uh, charisma. But it, it's, uh, it is certainly a, a wonderful asset that you have that I think has. Thank you. There are a lot of great radio people without great radio voices. There are many of them. There you so. go. Um, everybody. There you go. So you went to this radio station right after college. You just kind of applied to different places and No, and not really, because they were searching for somebody to take over. I was there the next morning in wow. Eric Rosh Hashanah, September nineteen eighty three. I was on the air literally the next morning and I never left. And I mean the whole thing was just again, you know, talk about the hand of God. I mean, uh that a job like that would open up and that the person they call knew I would want it and the people who were on the search committee, it was really their last resort. 
just a call blindly and see if there's anybody in the world that would make a commitment to do it, not realizing that they would find somebody who would, you know, again, give his right arm and be there day and night to do it. So yeah, I never really applied for anything. I showed up, I think, I think a couple of weeks later, I actually met the general manager. Like, oh, you're working here? And I, you know, and I told him that, yeah, I was hired and I'm the guy. And it was, and the support system there was wonderful. They wanted to see the show grow and the, you know, the audience grow and, and, and the offerings that we would give the community, you know, expand beyond the music, but, you know, do community uh, interviews and bring Jewish news to the attention of the people. And we did a lot of that. We did a lot of that over many years. And now we're doing a lot of it, you know, in this, uh, in the form that we're in now and ma- making an impact, making an impact and doing our best in a, in a really unique fashion. You, know, you talk about it being not being the job for a good Jewish boy. I mean, it's it's unusual. You know, we have a lot of stuff in print. We have a lot of authors in our community. We have a lot of people who communicate in the traditional methods. You know, speeches, etc. There are not too many people on a daily basis are speaking to thousands of Jews in different parts of the world and really in a free form style where you never know both musically and informationally what's going to happen and what we're going to provide and what we're going to be telling people about. How did you view the role or goals of those shows, especially early on? And I guess, has it evolved? I mean, did you see it as I'm a a Jewish music show and I'll sprinkle in some ideas? Were you thinking, were you sort of self-conscious of the potential as a moral voice or a spokesman for a community early on? That's a good question. I, I, um, I would say that early on, I just wanted to duplicate my college radio show and bring it to the greater Jewish community, you know, song dedications and birthday announcements, (laughs) things like that. Uh, And then very slowly, it grew and grew and grew to the point where at some point, I don't know if it was myself or someone who said it to me, I'm sort of looking back and saying, my gosh, you know, you see what's going, what's going on here, what, what, what we've built, what's, you know, how this thing has grown. And then there are, you know, when you do anything of significance in the Jewish community, there are probably in any community, there are periods of time that, you know, are significant, significant benchmarks in terms of, you know, achievement. And there was a time, I would say, I don't know, five, six, seven years in, um, you know, where finally certain people, community leaders, organizations, government officials started to notice that, you know, there's something very important going on on a daily basis. That, that may have been the most important six, seven year stretch of my career where I simply just showed up every day and did it because that's what you got to do in this, in this industry. You know, it's the, you know, generally an insecure industry that demands that you do things with extreme regularity until people start to notice it. And not very different from, again, you know, the author or speaker or concert singer or wedding singer that needs to get 100 gigs under their belt before, you know, they're noticed for their experience and for, you know, how they've honed their skills. But again, you're counting on people turning you on. You're not, you know, in front of a crowd at a wedding or a speech. You're counting on people turning on the radio uh, enjoying it, deciding to tune in, you know, for a longer period of time to recommend it to others. It's a slow, painstaking process. And then you, you hope and pray you look back and you've seen you've built an audience. What sort of opportunities have grown out of that over the years? Because it sounds like as you grew in popularity, you know, the first phase was just, as you said, showing up every day with your lunch pail and just producing a show. Eventually it became sort of an institution, a community institution. Um, and at that point, I imagine other opportunities and ventures may have emerged. Yeah, I would say that, I mean, there's no doubt about it. Uh, a lot of opportunities emerge. One of my dreams, frankly, and this goes back to the early part of my youth that I alluded to earlier, uh, I wanted to be on stage. I wanted to be an announcer on stage. And this opened up the opportunity for me to MC concerts and to show that I can you know, host an event the same way I host a radio show, which is very important to me. MC dinners and things like that. Are those very different skill sets in your oh, opinion? 
Uh, it is a very, very, very different skill set, and nobody would believe it. <laughs> it's, I, as an example, I am a generally awful storyteller. <laughs> generally, I'm an awful storyteller, especially off the air. On the air, when you are you know, trying your best to do it in a succinct fashion and get the point across in as few, as few words as possible, I have some talent when it comes to that. But off the air, as a storyteller, I'm off. And people think, what do you mean? You're a public speaker. You're, you know, what do you mean? So, yeah, everything's a, a different skill set. I do wedding jobs now where I'm literally hired to announce the bride and groom as they enter the reception for their wedding. Because we do it in this very dramatic, you know, Paul Turner type fashion, you know, where we're revving up the crowd and giving them the ultimate uh, covet, so to speak, when they come in as bride and groom. And that 30-second procedure, I have dissected to the point where I could tell you every nuance of what you need or, sh- or should do or shouldn't do in order to perfect that skill. So yeah, everything, in my opinion, when it comes to spoken word is of a different skill set. But you asked about opportunities. So one of them was emceeing events. But then it also, I mean, there's the opportunity of influence. You know, once people start to trust you, and realize who you are, where you come from, what your background is, you can be a lot more liberal, and I use that word not in a political way, but just in, a, in, you know, in terms of a, you can be more liberal with your opinions, with some of the statements you make. They're much better understood down the road you know, after years of experience when people get to know who you are and where you're coming from. So for instance, there's a large segment of the community that's uncomfortable with my stand when it comes to the state of Israel. No yeah. question about it. And you can imagine their opinions all across the board in the Jewish sure. about the state of Israel. Because the audience has gotten to know me over the years, when I make a statement, they know where it's coming from. They know that it, it either doesn't pay to challenge me on it, or if they would challenge me on it, they would know what I would say and what legitimate point of view I would point out. So that's just one example. But you know, it, it, once you've developed a reputation, once you've developed a rapport with the audience, you have more leeway when it comes to uh, being opinionated and, and uh, you know, presenting things the way you like to present them. Do you feel that at that point you also are losing more people, but it's just you can sustain that loss because you're out there? Um, I mean, you might be able to sustain a loss because the numbers are so vast now, thank God. But I don't know if I, if I necessarily lose people when I say something they don't like or say something that they don't agree with. I think generally most listeners probably agree with 80 90% of what I say. Uh, they probably regard the other 10% as, you know, as food for thought. Yeah, I don't know if anybody actually leaves for that type of opinion or that type of statement. You know, someone may leave when after five minutes they realize, you know, hey, this is a, you know, this is a Jew whose life is completely controlled by Jewish law and, you know, who has a certain political bent when it comes to, to Israel and, and Judea and Samaria and things like that. You know, there may be a lot of people that disagree with that. But it's funny, at the end of my tenure at WFMU, a lot of a lot. It's a relative term. Some people took to certain radio message boards to express how happy they were that I was leaving the radio station. Interesting. And they said it, and they sort of said the following, you know, always respected him as a radio announcer. You know, it's obvious what, you know, what, what he means to the community, what he meant to us as, a, as radio listeners, but could have done without his politics. And I think that's something you only get after a long stretch of time. I don't think you're going to maintain too many listeners three months into your stint if they don't agree with your politics. But you build up a reputation and you build up a certain trust with the audience. And even those who don't agree with you know that you're sincere in, in, in what you're presenting, what you're saying. And they may not agree with it. And they may not like tolerating it. And they might even celebrate the day you leave. But, <laughs> but at least have a respect for what you stand for and that you're good at presenting you know, what you want to present. Can you think of instances in which this platform has concretely been influential 
in some way or that you felt it's really brought social value to the community that, as you've seen it? Yeah, I don't know what you mean by social value. Again, I think a big piece of it is Israel, where people who generally would not focus on Hebron and would not focus on Harabayit, the Temple Mount, uh, would not focus on the fact that there is an Israel Independence Day, even if they wouldn't celebrate it. You know, I, I think that we've brought things like that to people's attention. You know, we're, we're, we're doing this conversation now in November of 2017. It's 100 years since the Balfour Declaration. Yeah. Uh, I am sure, I am positive that because of the fact that during the week leading up to November 2nd, 2017, I've been speaking about the 100-year anniversary or the 100th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration, I'm sure there are people in my audience who have never heard of Balfour, <laughs> who have no, some who have, had, who have no clue why it's so important, that episode in modern Jewish history, and some who never dreamt that they would discuss it with their kids or make them aware of it. But because of the way I've been drumming it into my audience you know, over the last couple of weeks, I think that they've incorporated that type of thing into their lives or in, into their conversation. Let's put it that way. So Israel's a big piece of it. I mean, the show, obviously, and, you know, when it comes to music, the show's been very influential. And it comes to Jewish organizations, I think we've highlighted some of them over the years that people would not know about or understand the vast role they have in the community, if not for the descriptiveness that we are allowed on the radio, as opposed to just reading an article about something, you know, they've met a lot of the personalities who are behind important activities in the community, which is very important. And then in general, we speak to thousands of people every day. And it's not a million people, it's thousands. But when a government official wants to speak to the Jewish community or make a statement that will end up, you know, going viral in the Jewish community or will be picked up by other websites in the Jewish community, they come to us because they know that you know, this, this is exactly the, the people I want to speak to. So there have been some moments over the years that have been quite significant. When Mayor Giuliani threw Yasser Arafat out of Lincoln Center, you know, 20-some years ago, on Arafat's visit to New York, you know, the next morning he was on the show to explain why he did it, knowing that this is his audience. This is the group that, you know, is generally supporting what he did. There were people who weren't supportive. And when Senator Schumer took on President Obama, when he felt the president was pressuring Israel too much, he came on the show and used our forum basically to blast the president at that point, knowing that, again, he was in the right place to make a statement like that and would have full support and that we'd make sure everyone knew about it. So it's not only being influential, it's also, you know, establishing, creating, and then continuing a platform where others feel they can come and address the world, better yet, address the Jewish world. I know that in many cases, you've, you've taken your show on location. I think actually, uh, you likely would not remember this with all the people you meet, but the yeah. one time I can remember, I think, meeting you in person was at the uh, finish line of the Miami half marathon a couple of years ago. Wow. Uh, it was four or five years ago. Yeah. And you were there on location, you know, set up, broadcasting your show from maybe it was uh, one of the organizations. Right. Tents, we were with Yachad that year. Yachad. So that's obviously, I guess, a part of what you do. Tell me about that and how significant or how integrated is that practice in your show and what does it add to the experience? It, for us, it's really exciting. You know, generally, I am in the place that you're looking at right now, which is a, a small studio in lower Manhattan with the step, uh, step and repeat behind me. That's generally where we are. And, you know, I'm, I'm speaking into a microphone and hoping that there are people out there listening. Uh, going on location is fun. It's, it's wonderful to interact with people. It's great to get feedback from people. I love going to any event, whether we're on the air there or not. And just hearing from people what they think about the show and the fact that they want to discuss the show. You know, so th when, we are, when we associate, when we're sponsored by an organization to come along like you just described, it's great. It's wonderful. We get to meet them. 
bring their message to our audience. But then we've done a lot of uh, other extra special things. I mean, broadcasts from Israel. Uh, we were there for Jerusalem 50, broadcasted the entire week from there, which is amazing. You have to remember, you know, the majority of Jews in the United States and the diaspora were not in Jerusalem for Jerusalem 50. There were thousands there who went, but most did not. And we were able to bring that whole feeling and the entire celebration to everybody, which is great. Um, so that's unique. We uh, recently, it seems like recently, but it's already a year since we broadcasted from Venice for the 500th anniversary of the Venetian ghetto. We broadcasted from France when we brought a major Jewish music concert there for the Jewish Unity Initiative. I mean, we've done some really crazy and wonderful things to just bring the Jewish world closer. It's actually one of our subtitles when it comes to the Nahum Segal Network is to bring the Jewish world closer. Because I think as people tune in and as they get to know what we do on a daily basis, they do feel closer to other people in the community. You know, very often we see, and we see this especially now with the numbers, you know, online, that when either tragedy strikes or when an event happens that affects Jews everywhere. And when the boys were kidnapped in Israel, it was a collective Jewish pain felt throughout the entire world. We see a growth in our audience during episodes like that. Not that we're going to reveal anything that news stations aren't revealing or that we're going to compete with the Jerusalem Post when it comes to the latest breaking news, but just people need to feel part of a community. They need to celebrate occasions together, Israel Independence Day and many others. They need to mourn together when there's a, when there's a tragedy that strikes the community. So that's a phenomenon that's uh, unique to radio, I believe. And um, yeah, going on location is just uh, just one piece to exciting things we do thank god you know it's amazing that you've gotten to go to so many places and like you said also invite so many guests on your show i'm curious maybe who some of the most interesting compelling inspiring figures are that you've gotten to speak to interview um, and maybe how have they shaped or changed or influenced you how they've influenced me is a good question that's a good question i'd have to really think about that whether a guest who's here for a half hour it has had a profound influence on me. Uh, maybe when I was younger, it happened you know, more often than I think. That's a good question. I'll think about that one. Um, in terms of, I love featuring guests who, who cause the audience to be amazed that I can speak to a guest the way I speak to them. <laughs> I will tell you, I'll tell you what I mean. When Riff Steinsaltz visits our studio, it is a conversation that's not only filled with his genius, and his observations, his genius observations, but a tremendous amount of humor. Just a, he has an unbelievable sense of humor, which people generally would not associate with an academic like that. His unbelievable sense of humor, and I just enjoy. I love the fact that I can bring out some of that humor to the audience. I don't think that the way I interact with him is generally the way people see him, even if he is being funny, you know, during a lecture, etc. I think it's very different in conversation. So that type of thing. That's something that, that I enjoy a lot. I'm just, there was someone else who just came to mind. Yes, when Rabbi Crone has been in our studio, I've gotten into conversations with him about the football giants and the New York <laughs> Mets. Again, you know, I don't know if in any other Jewish forum he would feel comfortable enough to talk sports or show anybody that he has some type of expertise or acumen when it comes to sports. So, so those types of things I enjoy where people get real and people are ready to cave in, so to speak, to the intimacy of the conversation on radio. A lot of people say that when they're you know, in my studio, they, they don't feel like they're speaking to millions of people. They feel like they're having a cup of coffee, having a conversation with me. And that's the ultimate of compliments as far as I'm concerned. Um, so those types of encounters are probably the, the ones I enjoy the most. And again, when it comes to uh, 
you know, Rachele Frankel has been on the air. And, I, and again, I think there, there are questions that, you know, that we ask that others either don't ask or wouldn't be appreciated in other audiences. You know, when someone who is not from, from birth is in my studio, right? Alan Weingrad, who played football and, you know. The Cowboys, yeah. Right, Dallas Cowboys. And Allison Josephs, Jew in the City. You she know, just came, her episode was just this weekend, this past oh, week. So. <laughs> she has a show on our network. And she has an unbelievable story about, you know. Yes. Coming back to Judaism. I almost every single time, in some way, ask guests like that, why on earth would you want to be religious? You know, me knowing what I know about the Jewish community. Now, of course, the question is generally tongue-in-cheek, and the question is also out there for the purpose of, you know, hearing their inspiring words of, you know, you, Mr. Siegel, are from, from birth. You don't have the same appreciation we have. You know, coming from a land of cheeseburgers, we have a certain appreciation for for what we've discovered in Judaism. And of course, that's why I'm doing it, you know, to open up that conversation and to do it in a, in a, in a sillier fashion. Um, when people take my question that seriously, you know, an audience member takes that seriously, that could really, you know, irritate them. But I think at this point, people understand where I'm coming from. So those types of things where, you know, I, I don't think in many lecture forums, if someone like that was on stage, I don't know in the Q&A if someone would ask, you know, in the way that I do, you know, why on earth would you want to be from? I don't know. Maybe they would. But I think it works really well in this forum. and. Um, now, that's another type of, of uh, exchange that I enjoy on the air. Did you ever grow weary of, you know, you called it a, a presentation more than a performance, but at the end of the day, there is an element of performance and you do have to come to work every day and plug in that mic and be this upbeat, outgoing, sort of effervescent person. Does that ever grow tiring? Do you ever feel like, I wish I could be more authentic today uh, to match a particular mood you might be in or to tailor yourself in a different sort of way than, than the image you have to project every day? Or maybe that is an authentic representation of, of yourself every day. Well, I mean, truthfully speaking, it's impossible. It can't be every day like that. Um, you know, there are days when I have to, you know, turn it on because I want to, you know, I want to be that personality that people expect to hear. Um, I always operate on the assumption that people will wake up in the mood that I present. That people, you know, that I, that I control the mood of the Jewish world. That is, <laughs> that is how I operate in the morning. And no matter what, I think it's really important to at least start the show, to at least in the early part of the show, certainly, to try to be as upbeat as possible, to try to, to give a, oh, isn't it great, you know, to be alive type of feeling. But there are days that are really difficult. There are days that are, <laughs> are really difficult, and it's every day. And I think when I left WFMU, I think the estimate was I had done 8,000 uh, morning shows. That number just keeps growing. It's generally, and now it's probably even more because I take less time off. So now it's probably closer to 250 shows a year, you know, just the morning, not other shows that we do on the network and things like that. So it's, it's hard, you know, to be upbeat every single day. And there are times when I, you know, get into a rut and I'll say to myself, oh my gosh, you know, when is this going to end or how many days, you know, until things get back to normal or just, you know, the Jewish calendar itself, three weeks, Sphira. Even Cholomoy to an extent, when you know that people, you know, their attention is in a million different places, not just listening to the, uh, to the show. Uh, yeah, those could be very difficult times. Those could be, I shouldn't say difficult, those could be challenging times being out there and, uh, and trying to present the show. I would imagine you must have a strong support system outside of the show to allow you to sort of come back down and just kick off your shoes in a sense, emotionally, um, where you don't have to be on at all times. Yeah, I mean, there's an unbelievable support system. We have a fantastic staff. I have a wonderful family. And yeah, the support system is incredible. And most people generally are very supportive of what we do. 
I don't just mean financially. I mean, they're supportive. They're, uh, you know, generally people like to associate with a winner. Thank God we're still winning. <laughs> so that's, <laughs> that's good. What's unusual, and it's funny because you said this at the very beginning. I think you said either nine to five or a traditional job. I don't remember exactly what it was. This is a 24-hour job. And I know that sounds strange because I'm only on the air, obviously, a certain number of hours. But I joked, and it's only half a joke, that we work from Havdalah to candle lighting because there's always something going on. There's always, you know, people contacting us and decisions to be made and changes that have to go, you know, that have to be implemented. And, you know, you're on the air with a technical system that you hope holds up and that has to be, you know, addressed constantly. It's, it, it is, you know, you're always on call. And, um, you know, that, that may be one big difference from the traditional Jewish job that, you know, from Havdalah to candlelighting, we are almost completely focused on what is happening on the air and what's happening off the air. I want to sort of get fully current and then kind of wrap up with a little bit about the future. Sure. Um, you left, as you've mentioned a couple of times, you left this radio station where you were for 34 years. That's right. a long time to work anywhere, certainly in the transient world of, of radio and, and media. Um, why did you leave when you left amicably, albeit, but why then to what end and what exactly is the Nahum Siegel network and how is it different from a show on a station. You know, it's funny uh, on the issue of job security <laughs> when when the economy collapsed in 2008, my general manager then at the radio station and I looked at each other and said, we may have the two most secure jobs in America, which was a joke, of course, because we're working in radio, the most insecure industry in the United States. Uh, but we were saying like, you know, that's how crazy things are at this point. Um, but we were both there for, uh, for 34 years. And the, uh, the divorce, as we call it, or the amicable you know, parting of ways, uh, had been in the works for a couple of years. It, it, it was essentially, you know, I worked at a radio station that was a not-for-profit radio station, which meant that it was listener-supported. And it, it, essentially, our brand as a network, our brand as our own entity, and this has, hap- this has happened at that radio station before, where personalities grow to the point where they just cannot live with each other, so to speak. Our brand got very, very big. My fundraising interests in terms of growing my own network started to conflict. Bad word because it wasn't really a conflict, but, you know, to simplify it, I'm saying it that way. Started to conflict with the general fundraising effort of keeping the radio station alive, which was also a very, very important thing to me, you know. And, you know, there reaches a point where, you know, both just don't work together anymore. So we looked at each other one day and said, you know, this just isn't working and we have our own entity, our online independent network or what has become an online independent network. You know, at this point, it's just, he says to me, go grow it, you know, go and, and you know, don't let us continue to, to hold you back, so to speak. And let us at the same time do the same thing, you know, grow our own brand, which, you know, without a JM&M component to it. So that, that's essentially what happened. Um, we went ahead and after many months of giving the audience advance warning, uh, let people know how they can listen. There's a phone line for people who insist that the only way they can communicate with the world is through a rotary telephone. <laughs> That's a phone line. That's obviously a website today. There's no question the app is the most efficient and best way to listen. Uh, the Nahum Single Network app is a massive upgrade from the app that we used when we were still on, on terrestrial radio. All the archives of all our shows are there. We have a 24-hour schedule. People like Allison Josephs and Charlie Harari and uh, Miriam Wallach and many others are all part of our 
lineup. So we have an incredible lineup. Uh, Matis Weingast has been with me for God knows how many years. He preceded me at WFMU. He does a show every Sunday on our network. Mark Zamek, who's been at my side, as most of the community listeners know, uh, for you know three decades, is essentially our music director and one of the most important volunteers any organization could ever have. So we have a, an incredible infrastructure, wonderful staff, great personalities, and the most important, as far as I'm concerned, Jewish radio show in the history of broadcasting, and that's JM in the AM. And it continues. And we wondered, you know, who would come along with us and who wouldn't. And the truth is that at WFMU, they said to me, everyone's going to follow. You'll see, they're all going to follow you because, you know, they're just so, after all these years, everyone's so hooked into JM in the AM. And sure enough, the numbers are, are massive, thank God. And we're growing at a rate that we never dreamt of, you know, a year ago. And we invite everyone to listen in, to listen in. We have a lot of Facebook Live videos that are up, and we have a tremendous presence online. And the most important thing, and what separates us from anyone else who's trying to do anything similar to this, is that we are live, absolutely live, usually a minimum of seven hours a day, but certainly every weekday morning between 6 and 9 a.m. Eastern time, just like we have been for the last, you know, almost four decades. And that is the, uh, I believe, the secret to the success and the most important piece. And to bring it all full circle, you ask about college radio and the commitment, being there every single day. I I think that if there is one secret to the success of this venture, it is that we are live every single weekday morning. Even if I'm not there, there's a sub doing it. Uh, every single weekday morning so that the Jewish community knows that they can gather with people you know, in real time from our community and now you know, from the entire world. What do you think is the future of, of this industry? There's been so much discussion in the broader media just about the changing mediums. Obviously, radio itself no longer has this sort of captive audience on the AM, FM dial. There's podcasting and on-demand and everything is so sort of niched down and it's just a changing marketplace in so many ways. What do you see as kind of the future of the medium? Is it a sustainable medium long-term from a financial perspective and just from a, a, a listener interest perspective? It sounds like you've already been answering that in the affirmative, but where do you see this going generally? And are there plans that you have to continue to evolve, to stay current, to stay relevant? Oh, no question about it. I mean, I think the first piece in terms of sustainability, you have to be very creative. And that's one of the, that's what we've, I mean, we've developed this, thank God, over many decades. Uh, I mean, you have to be creative. You have to know how to um, uh, incorporate uh, corporate sponsors into what we do. You have to know how to incorporate uh, not-for-profit organizations into what we do. And you have to not incorporate a, a donor base. You know, li- we are listener-supported, essentially. And we depend on people out there who are enjoying the show or who never listen but understand the value of the show and what it brings to the community to continue to support it. So that's the financial end, and that takes a lot of hard work, and, uh, and I do believe that it has tremendous capability. Um, in terms of being out there with so many different choices, with so many different, so many different presentations uh, that are being offered, I mean, I think the cream rises to the top, essentially. And the ones that are most dedicated, and, and look who is successful, the ones who are doing things on a regular basis, high quality, dependable, respectful. And I think if one follows that formula, uh, and if we continue to follow that formula, I think there will uh, there'll always be an interest among a uh, you know, significant portion of the community worldwide in what we do. One of the things I have noticed, and that is there's a lot of room out there. There are a lot of people who subscribe to a lot of podcasts. Yep a lot of entertainment sources and do binge watching of a lot of different shows and are tuned into a lot of different television services and so much other stuff online and everyone has their thing, you know, what they enjoy. 
I think that as we continue to uh, introduce ourselves to more and more people, especially outside the New York, New Jersey area, because it's a new market for us in many ways, you know, the rest of the globe, <laughs> I think more and more people will appreciate the value of, of what we bring to the table and will join in. And again, I, it's funny. I say to everybody who I meet, especially if I meet somebody who says, you know, I've had trouble with the adjustment, the transition, that now you're all digital, et cetera. I have to get my grandson to, you know, to put the app in my phone, you know, stuff, stuff like that. <laughs> I, always, I always say to people, if you're having trouble, call your nearest eight-year-old. They'll, they'll <laughs> trouble. But I always say to them, don't listen. Don't listen for the three hours a day you used to listen. Listen for five minutes a day. Give me a commitment that you will tune in for five minutes a day because then I, I guarantee you, your complaints will all disappear and you're going to find a way to listen to us as often as possible. And that generally is the reaction I get. People who said, oh, I'll never be able to make this transition. I'll never be able to get used to it are all telling me how wrong they were. Or now they listen on archives, you know, when they want to. Or now they'll listen, uh, you know, through their telephone. Or they will take my advice and tune in for the five, ten minutes a week that they want to hear during a day they want to hear, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a lot of room out there. The world population, the Jewish population, as small as a people as we are, is still rather significant. And I'd like to continue to make this type of impact with as many people as possible. Oh, wonderful. And, and Nachum, if you would, just in closing, uh, tell our listeners how they can access your content. I'm sure they can easily Google it, but where are sort of the ideal portals to enter into your Nachum Siegel world? Good idea. We actually have a card that we had that to people. I don't know if you can see this. <laughs> there is actually a phone number that people can call. And by the way, if there are elderly people out there who are, or people out there who know of elderly people, who literally would tune into great program that they'd enjoy every day, but they all the only way to access it is through a phone line. Give them the number. It's 605-562-4400. 605-562-4400. We call it the NSN, Nahum Siegel Network Listen Line. Then we have a website, nachomsegel.com, and certainly the most effective way, the way that will, uh, that will likely start dominating your day as you get into your car and it turns on, the Bluetooth picks it up, is our app. The app is available for Android and iPhone. You can comment on the app in real time, which we see when we're doing live programming. And that's simply, uh, you just go to the uh, Google Play Store or the App Store on iPhone and you search Nahum Siegel Network. We call it the, N I call it the beloved NSN app. <laughs> beloved to many, that's for sure. And it's uh, certainly been such a treat to hear about this beloved medium to you and how your enthusiasm, infectious as it is, has obviously magnetized thousands and thousands of people in the Jewish community, brought a tremendous value to the community. And I wish you and your voice many continued years of health and success as you continue to enlighten, entertain, and inform the Jewish community. Thank you, Nachum Siegel, for joining us. I greatly appreciate that. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you very, very much. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.